Hey folks, uh, just in case you're new to the podcast, welcome. Um, this is a bonus episode. This is a this is a series that Mike did about two years ago on faith and politics that a lot of folks found helpful. So we thought in this crazy election season that we would uh, bring these back. Uh, this is actually episode one and two because uh, Mike's recorder died halfway through his first uh, episode. So you get a one-two punch. Also, uh, you'll hear Mike reference a new scholar that he had been reading by the name of Tim Gombis, or Gombis, as he says here. Um, Most of you who are regular listeners will recognize Mr. Gombis because he is a big part of our Vox family now. So, um, again, these are older episodes from two years ago, but... uh, Hey, so here we go. Faith and politics, part one. Today, I want to start a conversation about politics. Now, we did a whole bunch on politics right around the election um, and uh, immediately after it. But I I want to, I'm inspired by the work of some scholars, um, a guy named Michael Goheen. uh, I think that's how you pronounce it. um, The ever uh, incredible N.T. Wright and then a, a very underrated Pauline scholar named Tim Gombis. I think that's how you, Gombis, Gombis, G-O-M-B-I-S. Really, really love uh, his stuff. And he had a blog that, you know, back in the day, um, I remember, uh, you know, benefiting greatly from stuff he'd written on it, but he's got a couple of books about the Apostle Paul. Paul, for me, has always been a bit of a um, mystery uh, Jesus, love Jesus, fan of Jesus, understand, you know, as best I can, Jesus and his Jewish culture. Paul's been been hard for me just because I, I react very strongly against uh, the ways that, that um, oftentimes Christians sort of read modern categories back into Paul and it make it seem like Paul's preaching a different gospel than what Jesus preached and whatever. Um, and, and the more I study Paul, the more I, I realize, oh, no, no, that's not true. Even remotely, Paul is genius. Um, obviously, he had help. Um, but but in terms of an ambassador of a Jewish faith now turning to the non-Jewish world, um, he's very, very amazing. And, and, um, and so uh, Gombus had written some stuff uh, way back in the day about Paul and politics uh, that inspired this next several sort of posts. I want to talk about um, how to reconcile faith and politics. I want to talk about how to be political without being partisan. And, and it's so, I mean, it's so toxic. And we all know this, right? Um, uh, we have been, I think our political parties have done a much better job of discipling us than the scriptures have. And, and, and for proof of this, I, I just, I've met people who will simply say, I cannot imagine someone being a Christ follower and voting as a Democrat or for a Democrat. And, 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 and similarly, people saying, I cannot imagine being a Christ follower and voting along conservative lines. Um, the fact theologically is that, that you and I, as a Jesus follower, have more in common with a Jesus follower than 
who is a political supporter from another party than we do of somebody who is just not a not Jesus follower who is uh, who values and would echo our political beliefs. In other words, um, the the let's say let's say you're you're not a big fan of Trump. The Trump loving Jesus follower has more in common with you, the progressive loving Jesus follower, um, than other progressives would have in common with you. I'm like that would be the theological point. And the fact that it doesn't feel that way, the fact that there is such animosity between Christ followers over politics, um, is demonstrates that we've been better discipled by political parties than we have by our local churches. And, and the reason simply is we make our political identity either equal to or more important than the identity we, we have as citizens, as citizens of the kingdom of God. And we'll all say, of course, that in theory, yes, we are citizens of political uh, of the of the kingdom of God, and that is secondary to our politics. But that's not how anyone acts, and that's not how anyone communicates to each other, and that's how not how anyone argues. And um, and so what's happening in our world is is you know I, I mean I don't even need to illustrate it. It's just the the water we swim in. It's the air that we breathe. It is it is absolutely toxic for us. And and I find myself falling into it as well. I mean my personal opinions about uh, our president aren't incredibly favorable. And um, I think that uh, I, I, there are things I feel deeply about um, that, that I would do much differently uh, were I in charge. Um, and, and, and the people, some of the people that are so, you know, fervently um, anointing him as God's candidate. I mean, I really struggle um, with with doing that, and I struggle with what I think it's doing to Christian witness, and why it is that so many people are leaving and exiting the faith who are younger. I mean, I think this is all tied together, and so I have very very strong opinions about it. But um, I, I want to learn how to be political without being partisan. I, I want to learn how to engage in social media, how to engage in political talk and practice without reading everything through the lens of, you know, progressive versus conservative, uh, that, that is simply we're, that we're doing greater harm, uh, to the cause by engaging in political discourse, the way that we do, then being either right or wrong about our politics. So I think this is incredibly, incredibly important. Whenever I get into politics and, and this, this comment, I have to admit pisses me off and I'm sorry for the P word, but that's the mildest word I can get away with right now. Um, the, anytime I, I start to get into politics, people will say, hey, just stick to preaching. Love you. Love you as a preacher. Stick to preaching. Like, <laughs> stay in your lane. And, you know, this is when obviously athletes will do this. Hey, just dribble the ball. Um, you know, whatever. Uh, and, and what I want to say is, um, and what I want to show is that preaching is political in its very nature and the gospel that we proclaim is political in its very nature. And, um, and the politics, you know, when you talk about Jesus, you can very much get into, and it's very easy to enter, uh, to, uh, to enter into political conversations around the teaching of Jesus. It's much harder, I think, with Paul, because Paul has kind of this reputation, and I certainly held that this was true of him, that he's more just the, hey, the individual salvation guy. 
Um, but I don't think that's true. Uh, and, and I think there, there's a lot that, that Paul does and illustrates that is incredibly relevant for how we po- be political in our day. So, um, this is me channeling other scholars, of course, not, not a surprise there. I'm not nearly as smart as this, but I want to react to the political climate we're in, to the fact that we've been discipled by political parties, um, better than we've been discipled as uh, Jesus followers. And I want to once and forever deal with the stick to preaching <laughs> motif. So um, the, the relationship, of course, between the, the church slash Christians and politics has been very, very difficult. Um, and we've seen it in you know the history of American evangelicals in politics. We've seen the pendulum swing, you know, from from radical separation to uh, unbelievable engagement, right? I mean, for some, politics and Christian faith are best kept completely separate. In fact, they would argue that politics, by any political engagement, will necessarily, in virtue of it being politics, will pollute your faith. So you cannot be involved in politics and keep your faith pure. Nothing but trouble um, awaits those who begin to become politically active. And uh, that, that ultimately our faith in God is a private, uh, private matter. It's not a political issue or a political thing. And, um, and so very often you'll hear people who hold this view, you know, use, hey, this is the lesser of two evils kind of thinking. And this was very much... Uh, a reason given for voting for for Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton or Hillary Clinton over Donald Trump. The other end of the spectrum, of course, um, is is absolute engagement, the part of the Christian faith. So, so one view says the Christian faith itself is antithetical to uh, politics. The other view says, no, no, it's because of my Christian faith that I am politically involved. Um, and like it's my Christian duty, and I've heard people use this language. It's my Christian duty to be informed about issues, um, to vote. To, um, to use the political processes for righteous ends. We're given this unspeakable privilege of voting that the vast majority of human persons have never, ever, ever enjoyed. And, um, and so what, what, becomes, you know, what becomes true is in the name of, of being informed, you're listening, consuming to talk radio or conservative progressive media and find yourselves in echo chambers or whatever it is where you're just, you're, you're, you know, your biases are always being confirmed by somebody out there. Um, and, and you find your primary allegiance um, when it comes to very important cultural issues uh, to almost be exclusively along party lines. Uh, and, you know, your opponents are the political opponents um, of the other side. And so so on the one hand, you've got people who say, no, no, the Christian faith is apolitical and should not be politicized whatsoever. And you've got other people that say, no, no it's because, I mean, our, it's our Christian duty um, to be political, to vote, to be informed and those sorts of things. So there, there's obviously a ton of disagreement over how to do this. And, and, and I, they're obviously really good 
Jesus loving people on every side of this issue. They're, they're incredibly, um, cause I know them. I mean, I, I can point to people who are incredibly Jesus loving people who like what Donald Trump is doing for the country. And there are incredible Jesus loving people who hate what Donald Trump is doing to the country. Um, the issue I have is when the, the, the Trump, your feelings about Trump, um, Trump, <laughs> Uh, your identity is as brothers and sisters in Jesus, of course. I mean, and, and, I, and I'm guilty of this, uh, obviously guilty of this. And that's why I can pick it out. Now, the, the point I'm going to make over the next uh, couple of podcasts is that Paul, that, that, that Paul could only have seen um, his message in political terms. That the gospel is inherently political. So there's no such thing as preaching and staying away from politics. Preaching is political. The church is political. The gospel is political. We're going to illustrate that through this guy named Paul. Um, now, now we even me saying that some people are like, yeah. And they, and, and you'll pack that with all sorts of meaning. Some people say no. And they'll pack that with all sorts of different meaning. He, we have to get back to what political means. Political has been unbelievably corrupted by the way and the value system uh, of uh, us politics. So, so we have to reject our modern notion of, of political. So our, our, our idea of politics has been shaped by um, presidential and congressional election cycles. Um, the, the national political politics of a two-party system, that has radically shaped how we understand politics. It's binary. Um, we're radically shaped by cable news and um, social media. Uh, that make money from stirring up our anger and demonizing those who disagree and polarizing viewpoints. Um, so, so we the politics has really been polluted by the way they're practiced in the United States. So when I say that Paul is political, you can't read political as in democratic two-party system every two years and then presidents every four years, you know, um, special interest groups. I mean, Paul was not aware of any of those things, obviously. And nor was he a fan of American, you know, Western individualism and uh, uh, what, what a democracy would turn out to be. So when we have to kind of start by redefining our terms, and, and we did this during the Jesus and Politics series, by politics, it just all we mean by politic is um, our, it's the ordering of our life together. It, uh, it, it, it is um, the way in which we uh, exercise authority and structure through human culture. It's the proper ordering of social practices and relationships. How do we, how do we agree on economic exchange? Um, what are the labels and categories of human interaction? All of that uh, is political. And, th and that's something that the minute human beings existed, human beings had to engage in politics in this sense. How were, how were human beings going to relate to each other and to the world? And the, the ordering of, of how that happens is what's, what we mean by politics. Politics has to do with social behavior and something called a polis. Polis is a Greek term that, um, that meant and referred to ancient cities and all that held them together as a cohesive unit, as a cohesive social and cultural unit. So the polis is made up of, um, of people who engage in politics. 
Politics is just the working out of how a polis coheres together um, and, uh, and works itself out economically, socially, so on. So the polis um, is uh, the organized structure uh, that that is somehow put into place to to govern our life together, and politics then is just the the a practical outworking of how our uh, lives together are ordered. All right now, if that's all we mean by politics, and if that's all we mean by political, then um, you can already see that Paul preached a political message in in the following respect. He first proclaimed the lordship of Jesus over everything, not just the spiritual life, not just the um, you know forgiveness of sins, but over everything. If you were a follower of Jesus, Paul will go on to say, secondly, that that all of your life should be reordered around this followership. The way that you have social relationships in your home is reordered. The way that you have um, the way that you approach people outside the faith is reordered. Uh, your ec- economic practice are reordered like there there isn't there isn't one part where god is is lord um and then and then you kind of can do whatever you want with the rest of it there isn't a private public um dichotomy there isn't a sacred um secular dichotomy this was all one like one bundle one thing that would be worked out together so paul very very clearly and he and he announces that the the church the churches are are the people who live under the gracious reign of jesus that those churches constitute an alternative polis um, they are an, uh, they are political. They're they're an alternative way of ordering and understanding social life together. Um, now rearranged uh, in virtue of the resurrected Christ's presence among them through His Holy Spirit. So the church is the body politic of Jesus. The church is an alternative polis in the midst of a greater polis. So when he talks about the church in Philippi, he's talking to a polis in a polis, if you will. He's, <laughs> I felt like Stephen A. Smith for a second. Um, he, he's talking to people building a, not a rival, but an alternative social order. The, the one that is being presented um, by whatever government in whatever city um, the, the readers are encountering this letter within. And so Paul's letters, when you read them like this, they're not a, a bunch of instructions about, well, church, you got to do this, you got to do that. No, what he's doing is he's actually re-discipling um, people about how to engage in the greater polis as now a member or a citizen of, of Jesus's kingdom. And it's absolutely fascinating how they're to treat each other differently, how um, their social and economic practices are to be regulated. There are new social rules and norms to be embodied because of the kingdom. I mean, it's absolutely fascinating. So we'll get to all of that because I think there's a beautiful, beautiful way to understand church and a beautiful, beautiful underway to understand, to a uh, way to understand the gospel. Now to appreciate, and this is where Gombus, Tim Gombus or Gombus, uh, did some incredible, incredible work to understand uh, how this plays out. You need to understand a bit about Paul's thinking. Paul obviously wasn't always a Christian. Paul uh, has a very famous conversion story in the book of Acts, where prior to meeting Jesus, Paul is persecuting the church 
after meeting Jesus, Paul now is spreading uh, the church and people don't even trust him. He had such a negative reputation as someone stamping, trying to stamp out the Christ followers that the Christ followers after his, um, after his conversion are very suspicious of him. Um, and so there is a definite before and after to Paul's message and Paul's practices. And Gombus makes a really good point that, that this before and after illustrates this, a similar conversion that you and I have to make regarding our politics and how it is to be political in the kingdom of God. So I'm going to spend the next 15 minutes narrating the, the worldview that Paul would have and showing how political and geopolitical that was. And then what we'll do next time is we'll actually show, okay, so after he meets Jesus, a lot of that is transformed um, by the kingdom of God, but he still understands salvation and uh, his message and his mission in very political terms. All right. So, but they've been transformed, of course, by his encounter with Christ. So uh, this is the next 15 minutes is just the grand, I called it the grand story of Paul's thought, right? Paul wasn't familiar with Western individualism. He wasn't familiar with democracy. He was shaped, of course, by the Hebrew scriptures. He was shaped by Israel's story for better and worse. He'd been shaped by that, you know, for his whole life. Now, in the, the story of Israel, of course, the one true God creates everything. And the one true God as the pinnacle of the created order um, creates and nestles the first humans into a garden called Eden, and he commissions them to build culture. He commissions them to fill the earth and subdue it. Subdue it doesn't mean pillage it. Subdue it means the word is kabosh, which is awesome, uh, but it means to bring order, to bring purpose. Um, to engage in politics in, in, in one very real sense, to order how life on the earth will be lived in relation to creation, in relation to the humans, and in relation to this God who made it. So, um, so for the creation story begins with the, the uh, power of the one true God speaking the universe into existence, nestling what are effectively image bearers. They're vice regents. They're like co-governors. Uh, they have authority. They have, they have agency. They have power to take something that God is laden with potential and to now push it forward, to move it um, and order it in ways that are not only um, uh, benevolent and beneficial to the other humans and the creation itself, but they re accurately reflect God's character um, in, in creation. In, in, in other words, that they're, they're image bearers, they're imaging God to creation, and they're, they're reflecting creation back to God is the idea. Of course, and, and we know that in, in the Hebrew Bible, um, this only lasts for a very short time. And um, the, the, the first humans no longer, they rebelled against God's rule. They no longer sought um, to rule creation in the name of the one true God. They no longer desired to cultivate the shalom that was, that was true of their existence prior to this moment. Um, they no longer existed in harmony with each other or, or with creation itself. They allowed um, the spoiling of, of creation, the, the, the entrance of sin and death into creation. And we get 
um, we get kind of what we have now, fragmented social relations, uh, judgments, gossip, slander, murder. I mean, Genesis 3 through 11 sort of shows the unweaving of the fabric of, of the social order that God intended. And the humans are, instead of now using... Uh, their agency and power for good. Now they're actually bringing corruption to the creation they were supposed to benevolently um, um, exercise and govern. And so in response to this, God does something geopolitically. He, he calls a nation forth from one man, Abram. And um, Abraham, we meet in Genesis 12. He just shows up out of nowhere after a brief genealogy. Uh, Abram is given a promise. He's given a promise of blessing. He's given a promise of land. He's given a promise that, that through him uh, and numerous descendants, blessing will come to the rest of the world. And so this thus begins, the creation is act one, fall uh, or the tarnishing of Shalom is act two. Act three is the beginnings of redemption. And, and God begins to redeem through the, the calling of one man, Abram, and his family, forming, promising to form them into a, um, a nation, to a, a political entity, and uh, where God would be their king, um, and blessing would come through this one nation to all the nations of the world. Now, God gives, them, gives Israel, ultimately, after he rescues them, they become very numerous. They find themselves enslaved to Egypt generations later. God rescues them through something called the Exodus. And then God gives them a very unique job description. They had domestic policy and they had foreign policy. Domestically, um, Israel was to be the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham. And, and they were to do that by being something called a holy nation or a kingdom of priests. They were to represent God to the nations and to lead the nations in the worship of the one true God. And, and from the very beginning, this is a political vision. It involved um, both domestic and international relations. Domestically, they were to be holy. They were to have an internal life that was completely different. They were to have social norms that were completely different. They were to be a nation of justice and compassion, looking out for the poor and the orphan and the widow and the stranger. There was to be no one in need among them. I mean, this when you read the Old Testament, it's not just God giving rules. It's God shaping a, a polis, a nation, and he's doing it in a way to stand out. That's what holy means. They were to be a standout nation among the nations that would serve as a magnet to pull the other nations to the worship of the one true God. If Israel were obedient to the commands God had given her, um, then then um, the nations would see this is a this is an Israel was a nation of justice and a nation of compassion and a nation of mercy and a nation um, that, of, of of stark difference from all the other nations of the world. Um, and so, so part of their job description was domestically, internally, they were to live by a completely different set of uh, ordering uh, of social norms. Their foreign policy. Um, what was interesting while maintaining a distinct identity, they were to welcome the nations. They were to be a blessing to the nations. They were to, um, demonstrate the goodness of God to the nations. They, they were to trust God for their military, 
Um, they were to trust God for his protection. God is constantly telling them, do not trust in chariots and horses, trust in the Lord your God. Um, God rebukes them for making military alliances. God, I mean, God, their, their like foreign posture was to be one of weakness and vulnerability. And if they, so they were to be holy in a kingdom of priests, but they were then to be uh, a light to the nations. so rudely interrupted by my SD card running out of memory last week, um, I was in the middle of trying to paint a picture about how faith and politics are to be reconciled in, in, a, in a Christian kind of way. Um, and we were t- using the Apostle Paul and his journey as an example. Now, remember, politics, of course, is just talking about our ordering, uh, the ordering of our social life together. Uh, it deals with something called a polis, which is uh, uh, some sort of community or group, um, usually geographically defined. We, um, uh, and, and so at that basic sense, you know, a, a lot of what Paul was preaching in the announcement that Jesus is Lord, I mean, that, that very clearly had political implications. Now, what we want to set up and where we got interrupted uh, last week um, is, is we were trying to set up, and, and, and I'm taking this from a guy named Tim Gombas, the, the thoughts of Saul the Pharisee and how he would have seen salvation in politics and those sorts of things. And then, and then very famously in the book of Acts, um, he meets the risen Jesus. He's blinded for three days, gets thrown off of his donkey. Um, and, uh, and, and, and all of a sudden he still, he still has the same zeal. Um, but now he's reorienting himself around the reality that there's this Jesus that has to be contended with. And, um, and as, and, and so he engages now in political talk much differently than he did as a Pharisee. So what I'm trying to do is trying to set up his, his thought life, the way he would have understood the world as best we can reckon from, uh, from the Old Testament scriptures, from, you know, writings of, of uh, the day, from what we know about Pharisees and so on. And, and so we're trying to reconstruct his uh, political imagination um, so that we can show when he meets this Jesus, uh, so that we can show when he meets Jesus um, how differently and how similar his political imagination becomes expressed. So there, there are huge similarities between how Paul is going to understand uh, the work of Jesus in the world before, uh, you know, or after he uh, comes to know this Jesus. But there are some big differences, too. And it's those differences that I think will be really enlightening for us. So if you'll trust me. We, we will pick up where we left off, and I'm just doing a lot of monologuing about Paul's sort of um, narrative imagination around politics. Where we left off was was in the, so we talked about the creation of Israel, or the creation of the world, the, the choosing of Israel as a light to the nations. Um, and they were given a kind of a job description. They were a polis in the, in the nations of the world. They were very, the Old Testament law is incredibly political about how judgments are rendered and about how social 
uh, transactions are to take place and about justice and economics. I mean, it's very, very ordering of social relationships. And, um, and, and the, there was a uh, domestic foreign policy that God intended for them, and that is summed up by the word holy, that they were to be distinct from the nations in the way they ate and what they wore and uh, how they dealt with the poor, how they, how they conducted war. I mean, all of those things were to be very, very different and distinct. And, and, and the reason for that internal foreign policy or internal domestic policy was to create a foreign policy that was attractive, that the nations would be drawn to the God of Israel because of Israel's public life together. And, um, and, and this required for Israel unbelievable uh, trust and faith in their God, because f- particularly in foreign policy, I mean, very often battles were fought where God would say, okay, you got, you got too much, you got too many guys here. So let's take 33,000 of you. Let's get rid of all but 300 of you. And then we'll go attack this like amazingly huge force of the Midianites. This happens in the book of Judges or there are battles in the book of Numbers where um, you know Israel wasn't, they didn't do anything warlike. Uh, they just would obey some random seemingly odd command from God and their enemies would be terrorized or, you know, they defeat the the city of Jericho uh, by just marching around it seven times. I mean, God, God placed them in positions of such weakness and vulnerability to continually show them that he was their strength. He was uh, their warrior. He was their advocate. And, um, and so, so this was hard for Israel. And uh, it would be hard for us too, no question about it. If, if God called us to lay down all of our guns, to lay down our military, to lay down our police force, and to trust that he would provide and take care for us, I think a lot of us would wrestle with those realities. And so, not surprisingly, Israel fails to live up to her vocation, not only in foreign policy matters, but in domestic policy as well. Now, again, I'm using purposely political language, even though it's not used that way in the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures, simply because... Um, I, I, I want us to engage with this big story and realize it's, it's loaded with political language from its very beginning. We've separated uh, the idea of politics from the ordering of our social life together. We've made it and, and packed it with all this weird American stuff that we do in the 21st century. And, um, and so I think Paul thought very much in political terms. In fact, what happens because of Israel's failure as they get sent into exile, they are forcibly removed. The, the northern ten tribes earlier than the southern tribes, but the northern kingdom goes into exile and never returns. The southern tribes, or tribe and a half, or two and a half tribes, depending on how you count, um, uh, get sent into Babylon and they return 70 years later. But they're exiled precisely because... They did not fulfill the vocation that God had given to her. So instead of being a light to the nations, they wanted to be like the nation. So that, that starts very early in the Israel story with their desire to, be a, to have a king. Instead of uh, Yahweh as their king, they wanted a, an earthly king. They wanted to trust in chariots and warriors and armies and in counting their population size and in human strategy and so on. Rather than cultivating a politics of holiness, um, they mimicked 
you know, and imitated the corrupt practices of uh, their neighbors, right? So they were just as corrupt in their politics and their economics and their social practices. Instead of taking care of the poor, the poor were exploded by the rich. Um, they they were uh, they they practiced injustice and the exploitation of the vulnerable. They adopted the worship of the gods of other nations. Um, they did not, you know. So they were not holy, first of all, internally, um, and then secondly, they. Um, they not only didn't trust in God for their protection, but they adopted um, a, a posture towards outsiders that was the very opposite of you know, they're supposed to love them and serve them and welcome them and attract them into the worship of Yahweh. Instead, it was very much a um, an arrogance, a judgment, a pejorative kind of relation, an adversarial relationship between Israel and uh, the nations, at least in some of the Hebrew scriptures, it comes off that way. And they imagined that God, you know, was this same way towards uh, outsiders as well. So, so they get sent into exile because of their failure to fulfill the mission God had given to them. But even in exile, and this is what's interesting, even in exile, they were to, to they were to stay uh, this kind of people. They they were to maintain almost a political vision of holiness. They were to stick together and become a polis within the polis. So the northern tribes had been scattered throughout the nations. Uh, the southern tribes now all went to Babylon together. And there's this incredible letter in the book of Jeremiah, of course, where they literally are to seek the blessing of the city they find themselves in. They're to be like literally a body politic in the midst of these big other kingdoms. Um, and they were to continue to, their, to to maintain their distinctive practices, to take care of the poor and the weak and the vulnerable, to maintain humility and the true worship of the one God. Um, so, so, so for them, the residence in the land, the promised land, was a political thing. Exile from the land happened for theological and political reasons. Therefore, the hope that they had was also political because what God did while the people were in exile is that God began to speak to them in terms of a new exodus. Remember, exodus, the first exodus was... was um, where God, through Moses and Aaron, rescued the nation of Israel uh, from their slavery in Egypt and, um, and formed them. And so the, 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 their imagination of salvation was shaped, was Exodus shaped because, um, and, and it was not just theological in the sense that they can now be free to worship God, but it was political too. They were now an independent nation. They were uh, self-governing and autonomous and, you know, so on, so on, so on. And so the prophets began to speak of a new exodus, a new covenant that God was going to make. Isaiah, the second part of Isaiah, a new exodus imagery is all over the second part of Isaiah. Um, you've got new covenant imagery in the book of Jeremiah where God's going to give his people a new heart. Um, the law will be written on their hearts instead of written in tablets of stone. They would finally be the just community that God had always intended them to be. And the nations would flood to Jerusalem to seek the wisdom of the Lord and his glory would fill the earth as the waters fill the sea. I mean, it's just in, these incredibly, incredible pictures were given to Israel while they were in exile, but their hope, and this is the really important point, not only in exile, but after the, um, their return from exile, their, their hope was political. And what I mean by that, their hope wasn't in some salvation in the future. Their hope was in 
um, that something would happen now to their social life together. It was a restored uh, kingdom of Israel, if you will, a restored body politic of Israel. And this this expectation shaped Jewish imaginations uh, in, in the first century like crazy. And you can see this even towards the end of the Old Testament book of Ezariah, the <laughs> book of Ezra and Nehemiah, or as I call them, Ezariah. <laughs> um, you can see this. There was this, this dream again of, of rebuilding the temple and rebuilding the walls and, and protecting itself from, from its enemies and seeing, seeing Israel's oppressors thrown down and Israel vindicated in the sight of the nations. I mean, this was very, very political stuff. For them, um, salvation and redemption, they weren't just, hey, here's your ticket to heaven someday when you die. No, no, no. It was about the nation, the body politic of Israel being vindicated in the sight of the other nations, their redemption was thought of in political terms. They wanted freedom, even though in the first century they lived under the oppression of Rome. They wanted freedom from oppression. They wanted the installation of righteous leaders, not corrupt leaders. They wanted a society of justice and compassion. And and all of this was summed up by the simple Hebrew word shalom. That's what they longed for. The, the, The ordering, the right ordering of society in a way that promotes flourishing for all. Um, and, and comes from God's presence among them. So this, this was what they yearned for. Um, so so they, they existed as a kingdom. They get sent into exile because of the failure to live as a kingdom of priests. In exile, they're still called to embody that mission. And then the, the, the promise is, is that they will now be given, there, there will be a new exodus. There will be a new covenant written. And, um, and so there's this very interesting thing that happens after Israel returns. They become a nation again, uh, but, then they're, but then they're conquered by, um, uh, by what, you know, what becomes kind of the, the Greek Alexander Empire. Um, they throw off that yoke for about 100 years during the Maccabean Revolt and the establishment of the Hasmonean dynasty. But then they're conquered by the Romans. And the Romans, so here comes, here comes Saul. We know him as Paul, of course, but is Saul the Pharisee comes on the scene and his political imagination is drenched in these terms. Salvation to Israel um, was purely, uh, not purely, but, but it, it understood almost exclusively in these political terms, that Israel was oppressed by Rome. They were a, a laughing stock among the nations. And what God would do when God would finally keep his promises. God would perform a new exodus. He would deliver deliver um, Israel out of Roman slavery. He would throw the Romans down. He would vindicate Israel and judge the nations. That was the political expectation of, of what salvation meant for someone who was like a Pharisee. Now, it's really, really important that we understand the Pharisees were not the bad guys. They were the zealous guys. They were the, they were the ones that were most interested in making Israel great again. Right. I mean, they were um, they. So so let me get into this just a little bit. Um, The Pharisee hope was that the God of Israel would fulfill his promises to set Israel free from oppression and restore the nation to its rightful place. Remember, God selected Israel out of all the nations of the world to be a blessing to the nations of the world. And and that required them in their mind to being set above the nations of the world to fulfill this vocation because 
Paul was passionate about this hope, right? The vindication of Israel, the overthrow of oppression of Israel's enemies. The, the fact that Israel in Paul's day was dominated by the Roman Empire was absolutely intolerable. Now, again, this is Tim Gombas, who does some great work on, on how uh, Saul and Paul then differ in their political imaginations. Um, he said... Um, the desperate need to set the agenda for the Pharisees. This desperate need set the agenda for the Pharisees. As Saul read the um, scriptures of Israel, he understood that the nation had been sent into exile for unfaithfulness to God, for idolatry, for neglecting the Mosaic law and its practices. Right? So the reason the Romans now ruled politically over Israel was because Israel had not been faithful to the covenant. It had not been faithful to embody the Mosaic law and all of its social practices of justice and compassion and worship. And so for him, if unfaithfulness to the law led them into exile, then renewed faithfulness to the law would absolutely, at a national level, right, the body politic, its fidelity to the law would now move God to act on behalf of Israel to deliver the nation from its Israel or from its enemies and bring about salvation. All right. So the idea, of course, is uh, is if. If, you know, not being faithful to the law was the problem, then being faithful to the law, of course, was the solution. So as a Pharisee, Saul's primary goal was to bring about a renewed nation and to present to God a purified people. They were to, again, to be holy is the, is the word that was used. Zealous for the law. Every bit is passionate, um, about the details of the law as their forefathers were. And he was convinced that if, you know, that the nation would be obedient and the nation was pure, then God would move um, to deliver Israel politically. Now, again, they use salvation language for this, but it was new Exodus language. It was the idea that they would be um, renewed as a people and as a kingdom. So what Saul did, um, he... (laughs) Uh, and this was the Pharisee project. It was literally a national campaign for the honor of God in Israel. And so that's why they cared about things like Sabbath. There, we have some later rabbinical writings where some rabbis would say, listen, if all Israel would keep the Sabbath perfectly, the Messiah would come. And, and you can also see now why Messiah was thought by the Pharisees to be a, a political savior. Right? The, the expectation is that salvation would be political, therefore the Messiah would be political in order to accomplish the salvation that was inherently dealing with the, the nations of Israel or the nation of Israel versus the nation of the world, the, the nations of the world. Hello, speaking, trying, I'm trying English. And so, you know, for Saul, purity, um, he was passionate for this. That's why Jesus gets into so much trouble with Pharisees. They had, what they would do is they would, in order, in their zeal to keep the law, they would fence the law in. That was their term. So, so if the law was, hey, do not sit in this particular chair, if that was like one of the 613 commandments, do not sit in this chair, they would add um, laws or regulations or commands that would be like, don't even get near the chair. Don't even be in the same room as the chair. Don't even look at the chair. 
And so growing up around the 613 commandments of the Torah were thousands of regulations and rules that were designed to keep the people holy. And so that's why Pharisees were so zealous about maintaining the Sabbath laws, but not just the general command of the Old Testament, but they created, I mean, dozens of categories about what you had to avoid on the Sabbath in order to keep it perfectly uh, or to keep it holy. They would, uh, they had meal rituals, uh, washing your hands. um, And Jesus runs afoul of of a lot of this tradition. That's why he gets in trouble with them. He's not, he said himself, he came to fulfill uh, the Torah. Um, not to abolish it. And, and so he's not abolishing Torah. He's actually showing what God's heart was in it. But in so doing, he, he, uh, he conflicts with the rules and the regulations, the traditions of the Pharisees. But you have to understand the traditions of the Pharisees were uh, expressions of their zeal. Now, when I listen to some evangelicals talk these days, right, around every election cycle, you have this almost apocalyptic fervor. We've got to win the Supreme Court. We've got to win Congress. Uh, The nation is sliding into a moral abyss. We've got to recapture America. We've got to bring America back to God. And there's always the second chronicles, you know, my people called by my name will humble themselves and cry out. I will rest. I mean, that was a national promise given to a national ethnic body called Israel that we now claim for America. There is the same passion and zeal. So one of the big, big parallels I want to draw is the zeal of the Pharisees for the righteousness of Israel in, in all of its good and badness is, is similar to not, not equivalent to, because I don't think, um, Americans see, uh, well, I think some do in old, you know, covenant kind of terms, but, Anyway, I do think there's a parallel between how we are to understand the evangelical movement as a, as a political organization um, and how the Pharisees saw what was supposed to happen to Israel in political terms. What I mean by that is this idea that, ma- that to make America great again, to bring America back to God. I mean, these, the idea is Americans, America is falling apart and we're falling apart because we've kicked God out of schools. Uh, we've kicked God out of uh, colleges. We've kicked God out of the arts. And now we are reaping the benefits of our secularism. And so the idea is, well, if, if the reason America is is backsliding or heading downhill is because we've not been faithful to God. Then we, then in order to arrest uh, this downward slide, we must become faithful to God again. And God will then get, will, will then engage and bless us the way he's blessed our parents and grandparents. So it's the same logic that the Pharisees would use. If, if disobedience got us into political trouble, then clearly obedience is what we need to do. In our case, 21 centuries um, later, hey man, America used to be really, really good, really strong, you know, foreign and abroad. Um, and what's happened? I mean, look at us, look at what we accept. So a national disaster, um, a national disaster, <laughs> a natural disaster uh, hits and immediately it's because of the gays and it's because of the abortion providers and it's because of, and, 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 and I'm telling you this, these were exactly the ways in which the Pharisees held the things that were happening to Israel, exactly the same terms. So Paul had a belief about uh, uh, Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, before his, you know, visitation 
um, saw the Pharisee uh, would have seen Jesus as a failed Messiah. First, because Jesus failed to enact the political program the Messiah was, was to inaugurate. Um, Rome, to be crucified um, by Rome is the exact opposite of the kind of Messiah that Paul saw would have been expecting, right? I mean, even in Galatians, Paul, you know, talks about his understanding of Torah. There's passage in Deuteronomy that says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The idea would have been, um, Saul would have very much seen Jesus uh, as a failed Messiah and God backing up Saul's verdict of Jesus because he allowed Jesus to die um, such an, an awful, awful, like uh, humiliating death. There's no way. And, and, and that's why this early Christian movement to him would have been a threat to the purity and to the righteousness and to the holiness of Israel. Listen, you guys, Saul would have said. Anybody proclaiming that this failed Messiah, that God has rendered, God has shown us he was a failed Messiah because he was put to death on a, on a Roman uh, cross. That was God's, ev the evidence that God had not favored Jesus was the fact that he was crucified in this way. Therefore, anyone claiming that this Jesus was Messiah is a threat to the Pharisee program of presenting Israel holy and pure back to God so that God would bless Israel. So it's not surprising that Saul and other Pharisees would persecute the fledgling Christian movement. When we first meet Saul, we meet him in the book of Acts, um, where uh, he's presiding over the, the murder of an early Christian named Stephen. And uh, in Luke, um, it, in Luke 7, it's almost like Saul is like the coat check guy. He's holding all the coats while the, the people stone Stephen to death. And in Acts 8, it says, you know, he heartily approves of this. And then a wave of persecution breaks out against the church. And so great was his zeal that he was, he was seeking permission to, to uh, haul Christians off to prison. Um, uh, in Acts, it says he traveled around Judea, breathing out threats and murder. And by his own words in Galatians, he was attempting to destroy the church of God. So what, and I hope this is making sense. It's a lot of talking for it not to make sense. Um, before his conversion then, Saul's political outlook uh, was one in which uh, salvation was primarily political. That the God of Israel was going to judge the nations, was going to free Israel from oppression, and was going to restore the kingdom to Israel. So the nations would be judged, Israel would be vindicated, and, and this would happen because of a renewed commitment by Israel as a national entity to covenant fidelity and faithfulness to God and to the Mosaic law. Now, Saul then embarked on a campaign of violence and coercion uh, against the enemies of this program. And there were two kinds of enemies that Saul would have seen. Christians, of course, but anybody in the land who wasn't righteous. So the, ta the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the sinners, so many of the people that were drawn to Jesus, all of them represented th the threat of God blessing, of God not blessing Israel, right? Because, because if God was going to bless them when they were a purified people, and these people clearly were not purified, 
you know, it's like it's like a Christian leader today saying, well, this natu- national <laughs> natural, dang it, natural disaster happened because, uh, you know, of the ACLU or whatever people you want to blame. It's the same logic that that the sinners in Israel and the Christians were preventing God from blessing. So, too, here it's the feminists and the gays and the whoever else are presenting God for preventing God from blessing our nation as well. The issue is that even in, in Saul's zeal, there were some things that he did that were not in any way, shape or form congruent with what God had intended Israel to be like. Right. So so, yes, he wanted Israel to be freed from oppression. Yes, he wanted Shalom restored. Yes, he wanted the people transformed into a just nation. But there were also elements of Saul's practice that um, that are going to be markedly different once he meets the risen Jesus. So, for instance, Saul very much uh, kept cultural prejudice prejudices. And, um, and, and, and very much carried an arrogant us versus them. It was Jew versus Gentile, Jew versus Greek. Um, Israel in Saul's imagination was to be uh, vindicated by God over against Israel's enemies. And the enemies, um, it, it, so it was, a very much, it was very much an us versus them. It was not a posture of love and serving the nations or blessing the nations like what was originally given to Abraham. Instead, it was, no, 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 we must judge the nations. Um, Saul, secondly, longed for God's vengeance against the foreign nations, right? So, so if the foreign nations are the problem. It's not, yes, Israel's internal holiness has an issue to play, but the, if we clean that up, then what's, what God is going to do is he's going he's to execute wrath upon the nations for their treatment of Israel. And he longed for that. He longed for judgment rather than redemption. He longed for judgment against his enemies rather than the redemption of his enemies. And then thirdly, um, the practice of his politics um, had become utterly corrupted. The ends totally justified the means in, in, in some ways that, you know, evangelicals today kind of relate to, right? He was violently coercive towards others. Um, and, and he saw the, the problem as people that he had to solve. It wasn't God. God was not going to solve this. It was up to him. It was up to the Pharisees. It was up to their national program. That's what needed to happen. And the people who were enemies, the people who were sinners, the people who were not pure, the people who were threats to national purity had to be dealt with. And Paul had no hesitation to deal with them the way he thought the Old Testament gave you permission to, by putting them to death, or very least by putting them into prison. So he was not only coercing other Jews, but he was actually trying to force God's hand. He truly believed that uh, he could get God to send salvation and rescue. Now, next time, again, I, I don't know if you're able to follow this. All of this background to me is necessary to make some really, really important points about how how Paul's uh, political imagination changes upon his meeting of the resurrected Christ. Um, I, so I think it's super important that we understand Paul's thought um, Paul's hopes, Paul's expectations, the ways in which Jesus would have failed all of them, all of them, not from, from not only who Jesus hung out with, um, to, to who he blessed, to who he included in his movement, to the failed, uh, failed political Messiah that he turned out to be. It, it makes total sense 
that um, what the the Jews, the Pharisees were hoping for uh, would have been understood in political terms. And, and I see some of that same fervor among my evangelical friends. Um, and I see it from the, from the progressives and from the conservatives, right? You've got the, the pro-Trump crowd who, um, I mean, I've seen bumper stickers and I've talked to people who are like almost seen, they see Trump in the almost like divinely elected terms. And then, and then you've got the never Trump crowd that, that, that um, is so unbelievably antagonistic toward the Trump crowd. There's no listening. There's no exchanging of ideas. There's no figuring out how America can move forward together. There's no respect. There's no dialogue. There's no humility, even among our Christian brothers and sisters. So to me, there is, there is deep, 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 um, uh, a deep divorcing from um, what Jesus and I think how Paul would have intended us to be political in the world today. And it happens on, on both sides because, um, for the, the Trump people, Hey man, Trump, getting Trump in office was the goal, getting a Supreme court justice, re remaking the judicial benches all throughout the country, you know, dealing with immigration, blah, blah, blah. For folks on the other side, it is literally, we have to get Trump out of here. He is destroying our country. And, and I of course have opinions of my own on these things. But is there a way to practice being political that Paul, the, the change from Saul the Pharisee to Paul the Apostle, I think will be incredibly um, illustrative about how it is that we are political today. So um, anyway, this is more of a like of a trilogy. This is the second part of a trilogy. It's just filling in some gaps, providing some color, but but trying to to make a case that a lot of how we view things uh, today is very similar to the, the hopes and dreams that the Pharisees had for Israel. Uh, obviously not perfectly analogous, but close enough that when we see Saul abandon those dreams for something else, we will see him practice politics in a completely different way. So my friends, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance to you and may he give you peace in these days. Thank you for listening. And uh, as always, love would love to read your feedback or hear your feedback on this stuff. Thank you so much. Thank you.